dear bought Winnie the Whale She fell in love with that red-haired sailor Boy, he made a ball and she fell hard Then he left for Winnie flat in the Navy Yard Crying Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll, we'll be continuing our examination of the Harlem Renaissance writers. Uh, and this time we'll be looking at Black No More by George Schuyler. This novel is, I guess you could call it a science fiction novel, although I think it might fit better under speculative fiction. It, it has kind of a science fiction-y backdrop, but it's it's really a novel about race relations and the color line and, and in some ways deep American history in regards to race. Um, George Schuyler was born in 1895 in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. However, he was raised mostly in upstate New York. His early career was spent in the military, which he dropped out of high school to join. He became a drill sergeant. In 1918, Schuyler deserted from the military due to some racial incident. And for this, he was in prison for nine months, and I believe sentenced for like five years or something. Um, this must have been a big source of embarrassment to him because he never admitted this happened during his lifetime. After World War I, he worked various odd jobs, barely making a living, a lot of kind of really low-wage, um, working-class jobs. In 1921, he moved he became a socialist and even worked as an activist in the Socialist Party of America. Later, he moved to Harlem and got involved in racial politics, becoming heavily influenced by Garveyism and writing for A. Philip Randolph's journal, The Messenger, which I, I must be socialist too, because A. Philip Randolph was a union guy and influenced by socialism. He wrote broadly as a journalist throughout much of the 1920s, and he continued to write in the Pittsburgh Courier for the rest of his life, where his column, New Views and Reviews, was a standard piece. In 1928, he married a white woman from a rich Texan, Texan family. The public response to this marriage was probably influenced, probably influenced the writing of the novel Black No More, which is about the color line and, and in large part do, about interracial marriage as well. Their daughter proved to be a child prodigy, and that also got some notoriety and, and fame for the family. In his later novel, Slaves Today, which I think publishes one year after Black No More in 1932, he confirmed that slavery existed in Liberia, but he refused to condemn the practices of Firestone, which benefited from slavery on the rubber plantations. And this may be a sign of his growing rightward tendency politically. Over the course of the 1930s and 40s, Schuyler moved directly to the right politically. He wrote against communism in the 1940s, seeing it in part as a conspiracy against black people. He even wrote negatively of Martin Luther King Jr. In 1965, he joined the John Birch Society. His daughter, the child prodigy Philippa, died in Vietnam while on a humanitarian mission during the war. His wife died soon after, but Schuyler himself lived in 1977. This gives him the honor of being the first author in this podcast, not counting Philip K. Dick, which is really kind of a, a separate podcast under the same website as this one. But it, this Schuyler would be the first author who shared time on earth with me. 
but if only it was only for a few months. And there, now you know how old I am. Now, <clears throat> Skyler is a really fascinating figure. He, you know, he was a socialist. He became a conservative, um, and he was actually kind of standing on the outside of much of the Harlem Renaissance writing. His most famous essay, published during the Harlem Renaissance came in 1926 and it's called the Negro Art Hook'em. <clears throat> and I have a copy of this essay or this selection of this essay. And he argues here that there's no such thing as black art. Here's how the article opens. Negro art made in America is as non-existent as the widely advertised profundity of Cal Coolidge, the seven years of progress of Mayor Hyland, or the reported sophistication of New Yorkers. Negro art there has been, is, and will be among new, numerous black nations of Africa. But to suggest the possibility of any such development among the 10 million colored people in this republic is self-evidently foolish. Eager apostles from Greenwich Village, Harlem, and environs proclaimed a great renaissance of Negro art just around the corner, waiting to be ushered in the scene by those whose hobby is taking races, nations, people, and movements under their wing. New art forms expressing the peculiar psychology of the Negro were about to flood the market. In short, in short, the art of Homo Africanus was about to electrify the waiting world. Skeptics patiently waited, and they still wait. And he goes on in detail here. He says, of course, black people have created art, but he thinks it's essentially American art. He doesn't think there's a separate black mind, I guess, is the point of this article. He seems to almost want to say that the very idea of black art or Negro art, as he says, is is a self-racist. Uh, again, the Afro Afro-America is subject to the same economic and social forces that mold the actions and thoughts of white Americans. He is not living in a different world as some whites and a few Negroes would have us believe. When the jangling of his Connecticut alarm clock gets him out of his Grand Rapids bed to a breakfast similar to that eaten by his white brothers across the street, when he toils at the same or similar works in mines, mills, factories, and commerce along the, alongside the descendants of Spartacus, Robin Hood, and Eric the Red, where he wears similar clothing and speaks the same language with the same degree of perfection, when he reads the same Bible and belongs to the Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, or Catholic Church, when his fraternal affiliations include the Elks, Masons, and Knights of Pythias, when he gets the same or similar schooling, lives in the same kinds of homes, eats the same mix, owns the same mix of cars, and nightly sees the same Hollywood version of life on the screen, when he smokes the same bread of tobacco and avidly pursues the same puerile periodicals. In short, when in response to the same political, social, moral, and economic stimuli in precisely the same manner as white neighbors, it is sheer nonsense to talk about racial difference as between the black American black man and the American white man. In the homes of the black and white Americans of the same cultural and economic level, one finds similar furniture, literature, and conversation. How then can the black American be expected to produce art and literature dissimilar to that of white America? So that's the article. That's the Negro art hook'em. And, you know, the other paragraphs are pretty much the same criticism, saying that essentially African America is, is part of American life. This theme comes off in Black No More. Um, pretty striking. I, I think in some ways this novel, Black No More, is, is a proof of what he says in this article in some way. So then, on to Black No More. I want to deal with this novel in, in one episode, so this will be a bit of a longer episode, so I apologize for it, but you can just listen to it in two parts.
if you want. Uh, the reason it's about 150 pages, so it, it doesn't really... I don't want to have too, sh too short of episodes dividing it up. This novel, published in 1931, can best be described as science fiction allegory. Its full title is Black No More, being a strange account, sorry, being an account of the strange and wonderful workings of science in the land of the free, 1933 to 1940. The novel opens with an apparently real account of a Japanese scientist working techniques to change one's race from black to white. He also quotes a scientist who seems to have been working on changing skin pigment from dark to white. So this is Mr. Balagati. Once I find myself a very strongly tanned by the sun, and a European rural population thought I was a Negro too. I did not suffer much from the situation was I did not suffer much, but the situation was disagreeable. Since that time, I had studied the problem, and can I am convinced that the surplus of the pigment could be removed. In case you're interested and believe that with the aid of your physician we could carry out the necessary experiments, I'm willing to send you the patent specifications. So apparently this was a real thing at the time. And of course, this is an addition to the hair straightening ointments, the creams. We saw those creams being applied in the black or the berry of this young woman trying to look more white. So there's all this cosmetic industry active in trying to make people you know, at least have lighter skin. So this is just an extension of that. Um, Schuyler dedicates his novel to, quote, all Caucasians in the Great Republic who can trace their ancestry back to 10 generations and confidently assert that there are no black leaves, twigs, limbs, or branches on their family tree. So he's right away really mocking the, the kind of the one drop idea you saw in some Jim Crow states, right? With, with Jim Crow, you had laws separating blacks and whites in public places and, you know. But then how do you determine who's black? I mean, this was the whole issue with the Homer versus or Homer Plessy case, right? He, he was an octoroon. He was one-eighth black, and he, he basically could pass as white. That's why he bought a ticket for white first class and then challenged the, the segregation laws in the Supreme Court. So how do you determine this? Well, some states had like the 116th law. Some had the one-drop rule, right? And how, how is that ever provable? I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to... To, to do that. Um, you know, the family tree gets pretty big after a few generations. So this novel is the closest the, the closest this novel has to a main character shows up in the very first chapter. His name is Max Disher. As we meet him, he is puffing away a cig cigars at the Honky Talk Club. He is enjoying a night out with his comrade from the war named Bunny. And they're talking about women. Max begins talking with a group of white patrons, even going to get them some alcohol at one point. However, when he makes a kind of makes a move on a white woman on the group, he is rejected with pretty strong racist language. She basically says, we don't dance with, with black folk. Although I don't think she says black folk there. So he's pretty disappointed by this. But we get... We learn from that this character is interested in light-skinned black women or white women, and he wants to sleep with them. The next he learns, he, he's like opening up the newspaper, and he learns about this black no more process invented by Dr. Crookman. Now, he's apparently found a way to stimulate vigilato, you know, the, this disease that makes your skin lighter, white, lose pigment. He's able to stimulate it, activate it, 
in people's skin by using some kind of electricity. It's a painful process, but with it, you can basically become white in a short period of time. So this is Dr. Crookman's account from the media reports described in the story. Yes, during my first year at college, I noticed a black girl on the street one day who had several irregular white patches on her hands and face. This intrigued me. I began to study up on skin diseases and found out that the girl was evidently suffering from a nervous disease known as vitiligo. It's a very rare disease. Both Negroes and Caucasians occasionally have it, but it's more naturally conspicuous on blacks and whites. It absolutely removes skin pigment and sometimes it turns a Negro completely white, but only after a period of 30 or 40 years. It occurred to me that if someone could discover the means of artificially inducing and stimulating this nervous disease at will, one might possibly solve the American race problem. So he admits the goal here is to solve the race problem of America by abolishing race. Getting rid of all black people by making them white. There's an interesting discussion uh, in which Max, uh, which Max gets through the media talking about how the procedure works. And people ask, well, couldn't you still tell they're black? Don't they have other characteristics? Lips, nose, curly hair, accent. And Crookman responds that these are all just the things we normally associate with blackness. We see a black person and we assume they have these characteristics and we see them speak. But we don't hear white people talk in the same, in, in the same way. We don't notice white people with big lips or big nose, or we, you know, of course there are black people that don't have those features who speak well. So the argument here is that all these things that racists associated with blackness are actually common among white people as well, and are put on black people just through, just because of racism. So the argument here is that, of course, if you just change the skin color, no one will really be able to tell, right? Just to take one example, of course there are curly hair white people. So it's kind of a fascinating little um, section discussion of how this works. It's also brought up, of course, that the children of these people will be black, right? So if a person who undergoes this procedure marries a white person and they have a child, that child will be black, exposing the racial identity of at least one of their parents, if not potentially both. So anyways, Max decides to go ahead and engage in the procedure. And his motivation seems to be largely later on is to make money, but in the short term, it seems to be to get that white girl, the white woman that rebuffed him at the bar, at the, at the cabaret. After getting the procedure, Max is hounded by reporters since he's the first to undergo this change or one of the first. He eventually agrees to tell his story to a newspaper, The Scimitar, and he, his price for telling the story is $1,000. He learns at this point that he can make a profit by exploiting the, uh, his, his racial change, by telling a story, and more broadly, just taking advantage of life as a white man. And that's going to be Max's thread throughout the story. We never really see a conclusion to his story in the novel, because the novel kind of switches gears about halfway through. Uh, but we see how he is... You know, just trying to make money from uh, being a white man. And if that means taking advantage of white people and their racism, he's going to do it. So he goes on a little date with the reporter and enjoys his first night as a white man. And he starts to notice, you know, big difference of how their light, nightlife is done. You know, he just says, you know, white people enjoy life differently than black people at night. 
he tries to sleep with the reporter and he's not able to. And he's a little frustrated by that. But then he goes to see his war buddy, Bunny, the guy he talked to in the first chapter. And Bunny's, of course, really surprised to, to, to see him this way, very intrigued. Um, but it's, you know, just kind of the first person he kind of comes out to as being, you know, someone who undergone this procedure openly. Um, of course, everyone else is going to see him from this point on as a white man. Now, as news gets out about the possibility of becoming white, thousands stand in line to get it done. And it creates a really interesting, rowdy scene where thousands of people are gathered. Um, and as you know, if you've been listening to this series, I love these kind of slices of life, these picture snapshots of urban life in these novels. So I'll read you another one of these. Lined up from the door to the curb was a gang of tough special guards dredged out of the slums. Grim Irish from Hell's Kitchen. Rough Negroes from around 133rd Street uh, and 5th Avenue, New York's Beale Street. And tough Italians from the Lower West Side. They managed with difficulty to keep an aisle cleared for incoming and outgoing patients. Near the curb were stationed the reporters and photographers. The noise rose and fell. There would be a low hum of voices. Steadily it would rise and rise in increasing volume as the speakers became more animated and reach its climax in a great animal-like roar as the big front door would open and white and negro would emerge. Then the mass would surge forward to peer at and question the Erzak and Nordic. Sometimes the ex-Ethiopian would quail before the mob and jump back into the building. Then the hard-boiled guards would form a flying squad and hustle him to the waiting taxicab. Other erstwhile Afro-Americans issuing from the building would, would, would grin broadly, shake hands with friends and relatives, and start to graphically describe their experiences while the Negroes around them enviously admired their clear white skin. And then there's other scenes about how people are taking advantage of this, making money on the side. It's all a lot of fun. Anyways, he leaves his apartment and he prepares to move. He bumps into his landlord who doesn't recognize him and then he, he just leaves town. He, he's going to go to, he says he's going to go to Atlanta. All right, go to the south. Now he's going to go south as a white man. Now, this is a direct contrast to the Great Migration where you had black people leaving the south because of racism, going to the north. And here you have a person who's now white who can go to the South to take advantage of racism, but from kind of by crossing the color line. So next we're introduced to Dr. Crookman. He's the guy who developed this Black No More procedure. He's expanding his business by creating new branches, but he's also facing an increasing amount of bad press from both racist and from African-American activists. One of these articles attacking Crookman's procedure gets right to the point. The procedure only creates an apparent change to race. It will not change the fundamental racial characteristics of the person. Biologically, the children of mixed race offspring or the, the children of mixed race couples will be black. And here's what the policy announcer says. While it is the right of every citizen to do what he wants with his money, the white people of the United States cannot remain indifferent to the discovery and its horrible potentialities. Hundreds of Negroes with newly acquired white skin, have already entered white society and thousands will follow them. The black race from one end of the country to the other has two short weeks gone completely crazy over the prospect of getting white. Day by day, we see the color line, which has been so laboriously established as being destroyed. There would not be so much cause of alarm if it were not for the fact that the vitiligo is not hereditary and that while the offspring of these white Negroes will be Negroes, this means that your daughter, having married a supposed white man, may find herself with a black baby. Will the proud white men of the Southland 
so far forget their traditions as to remain idle while this devilish work is going on? All right, so that, that comes right to it. It's a threat to the color line, and it's a threat to this, you know, the purity of the white race, right? Which was an obsession, especially during the progressive era, even anti-immigrant sentiment. You know, even Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans weren't considered fully white um, at the time. So we get a window into Crookman's justification for pushing the Black No More procedure. If he is to believe, he wants to eradicate the race problem entirely through technology. Meanwhile, there are all sorts of problems facing black businesses throughout Harlem and the United States. Black businesses are experiencing a reduction of customers. Banks are having trouble because millions are pulling their money out to pay for this procedure. Most hurt are the businesses devoted to skin lightening, hair straightening, and other cosmetic solutions to having too dark of skin. We meet one of the victims of the Black No More program in Madame Cesaretta Blandish. And I'll stop here and say that. Schuyler is having a lot of fun with the names in this book. Um, blandish. Wow. It's, you know, that's her job, right? Is to make people's skin more bland. Um, and we'll see more examples of this kind of humorous use of names. So it does show the novel's quasi-satirical. It's not a serious science fiction novel. It's using a science fiction, speculative fictional concept to basically uh, create a satire. Schuyler actually satirizes this figure, Madame Cesaretta Blandish, by pointing out that she's both vice president of the American Race Pride League and a profiteer of people who are trying to look more white. Well, we, then we return to Max Disher, who has changed his name to, to Max Fisher. Um, I'll just keep calling him Max, but he's known to others at this point as Max Fisher. He's not doing much with his life. He had enough money to survive for a while from the $1,000 he got from the newspapers. He starts to run out of money and looks for a job. He's also engaged in trying to find the white woman who scorned him earlier in the novel. He seems to simply want to have sex with her or, or seduce her or something. He's just kind of still angry that he got rejected by her early on. He's deeply interested in scamming whites where he can, though. And to this end, he joins up with a newly formed racist organization called the Knights of Nordica. It's a group, basically kind of the novel's equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan. He introduces himself to the Knights of Nordica as an intellectual who studies the negative impact of race mixing on the United States. He promises to use his powers as an intellectual and his research and his speaking ability and all that stuff to bring down Dr. Crookman and the Black No More, no More program. He warns them that the Black No More procedure will mean the end of the white race. The head of the Knights of Nordica is a man named Henry Givens, a reverend. And he's married to a Mrs. Givens, and we're given a none-too-flattering image of the attendance of a Knights of Nordica meeting. Quote, the audience was composed of the lower stratum of white working people, hard-faced, lantern-jawed, dull-eyed adult children, seeking, like all humanity, for something permanent in the internal flux of life. The young girls in their cheap finery with circus makeup on their face, the young men, aged before their time by child labor in a violent environment, the middle-aged folks with their shiny, shabby garb and beaten countenances, all ready and eager to be organized for any purpose except improvement of their intellects and standard of living. So there's a lot of mockery here, and it's not, and it's not just mockery of white people. There's going to be mockery of, of pretty much everyone in the novel uh, at various times. Um, and here, the people being mocked are the racist followers of the Knights of Nordica. 
Max, it turns out, is able, able to easily use racist language with the crowd. As someone who grew up black, he knows the language, he knows the rhetoric, and he's able to just spin it out very persuasively, very convincingly. It's basically stupid language. It's, it's you know, uh, it's not what you'd expect from a sophisticated intellectual and anthropologist. It's, uh, here's what it says. For an hour, Matthew told them at the top of his voice what they believed i.e. that a white skin was a sure indication of the possession of superior intellectual and moral qualities, that all Negroes were inferior to them, that God had intended for the United States to be a white man's country, and that with his help they could keep it so, and their sons and brothers might inadvertently marry negresses, or worse, their sisters or daughters might marry Negroes if Black No More Incorporated were permitted to continue with dangerous activities. So he just gives them what they want. He wants to make money off them. He wants to exploit them. He wants to move up in this organization and, and profit from it. Now, during the rally with the Knights, Max notices the girl who scorned him in the first scene of the novel. It is none other than the daughter, Reverend, daughter of Reverend Givens, a woman named Helen. Now, after some time gap, we again meet up with Dr. Cookman, who is currently opening his 50th facility across the country. With this many facilities working, the ground is laid for completing the Black No More project. The only ones who will stay black are the political ones. Most commoners will become white just because of the advantages of whiteness. The black intellectual class is up in arms with this. With most blacks ex exiting the black race, there's no money for their movements, no money for their journals, no money for their churches, no money for their fraternal associations. It is all in all a disaster for them. Quote, the Negro politicians of the various black belts grown fat and sleek protecting vice with the aid of Negro votes, which they were able to control by virtue of housing segregation, lectured in vain about black solidarity, race pride, and political emancipation. But nothing stopped the exodus of the white to the white race. So he's suggesting, Schuyler here is saying that the reason there was there's fear over this procedure is because the black intellectual class, the black political class is basically profiteering from racism. So we enter into this hilarious meeting of the National Social Equality League, where the African-American leaders are working out what to do. It is clear that Schuyler is making crude allegories for many black leaders. I, I didn't quite figure them all out, but we have Dr. Agamemnon Beard, who's probably someone like W.E.B. Du Bois. He's described as the founder of the league, the graduate of Harvard, Yale, and Copenhagen. He sat before the glass top desk rubbing his now curly gray head with his now full spade beer. For a mere $6,000 a year, the learned doctor wrote scholarly and biting editorials in The Dilemma. You know, of course, Du Bois' journal is The Crisis, right? So uh, this is Du Bois, and his name is Agamemnon Beard. It's fun. We got Mr. Walter Williams, who is described as basically white. Um, this is a caricature of Walter White, who was a very, very light-skinned uh, NAACP activist at the time. We have a, a figure that's basically Marcus Garvey, who's renamed Sandtop Licorice. Uh, we have a Dr. Jackson, who is an allegory for James Weldon Johnson. Um, there's a Colonel Mortimer Roberts. If he's not Booker T. Washington, he at least has a character. He's a caricature of Booker T. Washington's point of view. And then there's like a half a dozen others. I'm sure maybe Black readers at the time would have been able to identify who all these people were. I'm really not expert enough of this period. And, you know, all the black intellectuals at the time to maybe identify all these. But they seem to be all kind of one-for-one -one allegories. 
Anyways, they decide to beg the U.S. government to ban Black No More procedures, and they're rebuffed in a letter where the government basically says, you know, we can't stop a business if it's legal just because you don't like it. So anyways, um, we move on back to Max. The Knights of Nordica have expanded their membership greatly to a million people, and Max is preparing to marry Helen. Max has expanded the interest of the Knights to include all sorts of troublesome folks. It seems he's preparing for a life after blacks are all gone, you know, and so he can continue to milk the, the, the Knights of Nordica for money. We learn that labor is also flocking to the Knights, white labor anyways, because they are fearful that jobs will be going to these hidden blacks. And there's a comment here about how white unions exploited the color line to get good deals for, for whites while excluding blacks from the unions. And certain white workers, union leaders are afraid that this is going to you know, harm them. I'm not so sure about that, to be honest. I, you know, I, I, my reading of the labor history of this period shows that white workers tended not to benefit from white supremacy, and it was actually a tool of management to divide the working class. But maybe there were black union leaders who were able to, you know, try to get better contracts for, for whites while neglecting black workers. Now, Bunny comes into the offices of the Knights. He's now white. Um, and he is recruited by Max into the Knights and is dispatched to try to recruit black leaders. The logic of this effort to recruit them is that since they, they only know how to speak and preach, they might as well do it to hateful whites if blacks are no longer interested in going to their meetings. Basically, they're gambling on, on black leaders being just as cynical as Max is. He has a handful of schemes also to try to benefit from the growing chaos in American race relations, and Bunny is an eager recruit wanting to make money. Newspaper accounts show that women are starting to give birth to black children and black no more needs to start up clinics to convert newborns into whites as soon as they're born. And the way it kind of works is if someone is born in the hospital and they're, they're white and they have a black kid, the idea is you, you take them quickly to a special procedure where you white that, whiten them before allowing the mother to see them or the parents to see them. So this way no one will know and the secret of who's black and who's white can be hidden. As the second half of the novel opens, we find that Max and Bunny's plans is beginning to develop quite well. Their current scheme is involved uh, striking workers uh, of the organized by the Knights of Nordica. Max continues to show off his ability to completely co-opt racist language without any shame without, and without causing any of the people he, that are listening to him to suspect. Um, quote, he reminded them that they were men and women and they were free, white, and 21 and that they were citizens of the United States. And America was their country as well as Rockefellers, that they must stand firm in the defense of their rights as working people, that the worker was worthy of his hire, that nothing should be dearer to him than the maintenance of white supremacy. He insinuated that even in the mist, there probably were some Negroes who had been turned white by black no more. Such individuals, he insisted, made poor union material because they always showed their Negro characteristics and ran away in a crisis. Ending with a fervent plea for liberty, justice, and a square deal, he sat down amongst tumultuous applause. So he's just, a, a, obviously, a, an opportunist. They end up blackmailing the owners of the company that's being struck against and then defuse the strike. Schuyler explores the damage done to the working classes by their obsession about race. Right? Quote, 
It did not matter that they had to send their children into the mines to augment their family wage, that they were always sickly and that their death rate was high. What mattered such little things when the very foundation of civilization, white supremacy, was being threatened? So after this, we get back to the big picture and notice how the story seems to flip back between kind of the intimate stories of Max and the larger picture of race relations. The decline in the black population has ruined the industries that thrived off segregation. Racist whites have lost their, their opponent as well. The point of all this is that black people played a central role in the Southern economy by being victims of the Jim Crow era. Even the basic Southern cultural foundations, and I guess of the South, and I guess of all white America, is meaningless without, without black people to be kind of the foil against which they operate. It causes the crisis of the mind, so to speak. Taxes increased. The Chamber of Commerce were now unable to send off attractive advertising to northern business, offering them no, no or low taxation. That's just one example. There's a bunch given. This is in Chapter 8 of the book. There's a threat to the economy, and there's a threat to kind of white chivalry even. There's a point where he talks about white chivalry is put under threat because who are these white knights supposed to protect their women from, if not black people. There are no black people anymore, right? Or there's very few. Now it starts to cause a problem for Max and Bunny who find they can no longer easily exploit the race line to their advantage as they could in the early days of the black no more conversion. Adding to Max's trouble is that Helen is pregnant and wants to give birth to her child at home for you know, reasons of tradition, we guess. If she were to give birth in a hospital, all well and good, the baby would turn to be, be white immediately and as commonly done, um, but she wants, to, she wants to be married uh, or have birth in the home. Bunny is given $5,000 and a plan to burn down the home, forcing Helen to, to give birth at the hospital. But the Helen miscarries, solving the problem for now. Now, while this novel was set in 1930s, it was written in 1931, before the Democrats under Roosevelt come into power, before the New Deal, and before you have the shifting of political loyalties of most African-Americans from the Republican to the Democratic Party. At this time that it was written, the Democrats were still seen as a Southern white party, and you didn't yet have kind of this New Deal reconfiguration of the Democratic Party. So this may make the political games of this part of the novel a little confusing to some readers who are used to kind of the New Deal uh, Democratic Party, um, but just bear in mind that Schuyler was writing it before those transitions. Now, um, in this novel, it's not the Depression that becomes the center of politics. It's the Black No More program that's dividing the political politics. So Max is trying to get the Knights of Nordica into politics by focusing on anti-Black No More ideas. He also attacks Republicans as being un-American and Catholic. He starts a radio broadcast for Givens to spread his message and then forms an alliance with another racist group, the Anglo-Saxon Association of America led by the wonderfully named Arthur Snobcraft. I almost want to say this guy is Arthur Estabrook, um, but I, I don't know. I can't really prove it, but he's some eugenicist anyways. But this whole chapter, I guess it's chapter nine, it's just laugh out loud hilarious at times. There's a sign, like there's this big uh, report um, about a commission to study the black no more um, sanitariums and the and what the change in america and here's what schuyler writes 
Two months later, when practically everyone had forgotten that there had ever been such an investigation, a complete report of the commission, comprising 1,789 pages in fine print, came off the press. Copies were sent to prominent citizens and organizations. Exactly nine people in the United States read it. The warden of a county jail, the proofreader at the government printing office, the janitor of the city hall in Ashtabula, Ohio, the city editor of the Helena Bugle, a stenographer in the Department of Health at Spokane, Washington, a dishwasher in a Bowery restaurant, a flunky in the office of a research director of Black No More Incorporated, a life-termer of the Clinton prison in Dannemore, New York, and a gag writer on the staff of a humorous weekly in Chicago. You know, who reads government's reports, right? So the Snobcraft, what name Snobcraft, is forced to prove using genealogy that they have no black blood before they can claim whiteness as legal benefits. That's the goal of this Anglo-Saxon League Association, force people to prove genealogically that they have no black blood. Now, Snobcraft's solution to the black no war problem is to place the burden of proof on each individual to prove whiteness. Uh, he also has an ally in a man named Dactyl, Dr. Samuel Buggery. Um, and so he held that the only way to tell the tr pure whites from the imitation whites was to study their family trees. So he develops this program of kind of a general universal genealogical study of all Americans. So kind of the big project, kind of like the mapping the DNA, um, but instead using genealogical records to figure out whoever, who's everyone's races is by tracing their descent. So meanwhile, we're in the middle of a, of a campaign, a political campaign. The Democrats and Republicans choose their candidates. The Democrats fight over who it will be, Gibbons, Gibbons or Snobcraft. In the end, they decide that Gibbons will be the presidential candidate and Snobcraft will be the vice president. The Republicans are meanwhile trying to re-elect President Goosey. Crookman, rich from the Black No More Project, gives loads of money to the Republicans and becomes a major player in the party. Overhanging all of this is the work of Buggery collecting genealogies. He determines that much of America has black blood. I am now prepared to prove that hopefully one quarter of the people of one Virginia county possess non-white ancestry, ancestry, Indian or Negro, and we have further proved that all the Indians on the Atlantic coast are part Negro. You know, and that's that's kind of his preliminary findings. The full findings will be more devastating. Now, meanwhile, Helen gets pregnant again, and Max needs to come face to face with the consequences. He decides to leave it to Helen to accept the reality, you know, that there's black blood in him or he'll just leave her. Uh, the genealogy project comes to its conclusion, and the conclusion is that virtually all of America is black, according to the one drop principle. Most notably, um, the presidential candidate, the vice presidential candidate, the vice presidential candidate, the members of the Knights of Nordica, the members of the Anglo-Saxon League, they're all black. That's what is determined from this study, at least if you believe this one drop rule. All the major players in the racist organizations, the entire Democratic ticket, are not exempt from this. So they decide to burn their findings, but the results were stolen. The note identifies the thief as GOP, so maybe someone from the Republican Party stole it. The novel here sort of descends into slapstick for a point. Helen gives birth to a black child, but blames herself, not blames her husband, for having black heritage. The release of the documents showing that all the leaders of the Democratic Party are black causes their supporters to chase after them. 
Some Democratic politicians are lynched. Givens and Buggery and others need to flee. In the final part of the novel, um, Snobcraft and Buggery are trapped in a town without fuel for their plane, and they're trying to escape. They cover themselves in shoe polish so not to be identified. Taken for black, they're almost lynched by some crazies in a church. They try to explain that they're just whites who need a bath, but when they kind of clean up, they're revealed to be the people that the newspaper had reported were in fact black, so therefore they still should be lynched. Now, this is all easy to laugh about, but, and it's kind of funny, it's presented funny, but then it gets dark really quickly, like literally in one sentence. Snobcraft and buggery are brutally lynched. Their genitals are cut off, stoned to their backs. They are shot and burned. And in the final paragraphs, it's revealed that some of those in the lynch mob were white and Negroes. We get kind of an epilogue that explains that as time went on, people were able to reintroduce race into the world. The white and blacks were actually too white because they're, it's based on vitiligo. They basically lose all their pigment. And so they really are essentially albinos. The upper class whites then try to tan their sin, skin to set themselves apart. And in the final lines of the novel, we learn that a Mrs. Blandine has invented a way to darken skin. And the white upper class is active in trying to darken their skin at the novel. So, you know. There's the, I guess, the irony at the end of this tale. So that's a novel. Really a lot of fun. It's really great novel. Um, I enjoyed it. It's really fun after reading all these kind of very personal, intimate stories from the Heart of the Renaissance to get kind of a bigger picture, to get a piece of genre fiction. That's great. It's also nice to get a kind of a different point of view. Someone arguing against this idea that there's kind of an inseparable line between white life and black life. You know, Schuyler's point here is that there's a kind of a deep hypocrisy in, in, in this idea that there's a separate black experience. He wants to present, through the character Max in particular, that blacks are just as willing to exploit the color line if they can profit from it. Um, that there's a kind of a cynicism there. There's no deep divide except skin color. And that's really what it, it, it's based on. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it, actually. I think there are deeper cultural aspects to the color line. Um, but, you know, it's just it's an interesting point of view, especially if you read it alongside his article, Black Art Hukum. Well, the themes of this book. Um, well, of course, the color line. Uh, now, Schuyler is less sympathetic to either side of the color line. Um, he has no time for the search for authenticity you see in the novels like Plum Bun. There is no authenticity to be had. The color line is there to be exploited and used, if not by blacks, then by whites. Passing is just a game to deceive and trick. Uh, Jim Crow, you know, is big business for a lot of um, black middle class, black businesses who benefit from the whitening, who benefit from, you know, having institutions that could cater to black patrons. Passing is just a game. There's no internal black essence. It's just the same jealousy, greed, falsehood, lies. Um, through them and then ultimately he says everyone in America is is black to some degree and he seems to, he seems to agree that if you go back far enough in any Americans heritage you're going to find black blood um, because the colonial period was kind of a racial soup Indians and whites marrying you had sex with uh, slaves you had sex between indentured servants and slaves so if you go back far enough you're gonna, just going to find everyone's black anyways 
Um, other themes, uh, science. This novel is science fiction after all. So we have the role of science and technology in kind of whitening. This is parodying the real life efforts to, to, to lighten people's skin using science and um, different products. Of course, the whitening is ultimately in this novel a, a commodity. It's something people have to pay for. It's not a charity. It's something people benefited from and profited from. Um, we have political parties and political corruption. Um, the parties are presented here as essentially money-making engines, They're completely cynical, um, completely hypocrite. You know, there's no there's a hypocrisy to their identity. This is most seen by the fact that you have the Democratic Party, you know, exploiting white supremacy, exploiting fears of the Black No More Project, and they're all, as it turns out, black. Eugenics comes up here, especially in that character of Snobcraft. He's a eugenicist. Buggery is a eugenicist, too. And, you know, uh, Skyler is making fun here of the obsession over heritage and lineage. And, you know, since so many people were obsessed with lineage at the time and heritage, you know, Skyler just makes the point, yeah, you really want to go there. If you go there, you're going to might find out something you don't like. Um, anyway, about your own racial heritage. Um, we got the whole theme of interracial sexuality and miscegenation um, here. And this is really the question of the children and what to do with these black children who are being born to supposedly white parents. You know, that's a theme that's explored here. The final scene reminds us that racial violence is going to be a part of American life, whether, you know, even if something like this Black No More project could be completed. Um, racial violence is presented here as just uh, something that uh, is almost this cathartic experience of, 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 you know, of America. If there's no black people to, to, to lynch, they're going to lynch white people that they determine are black by some magic of, of genealogical records. Um, the final scene is kind of a nasty wake-up call. We're kind of laughing throughout the story, and in the final pages we realize that the stakes of the color line really are serious. You know, people are dying over these arbitrary categories. Um, we get kind of a criticism of kind of capitalism and personal gain. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's so much a, a, a socialist critique. Schuyler, I don't know where he is at this point. He was, of course, a socialist in the 20s. By the time he wrote this, maybe less so. He seems just to think that greed is just this universal. Everyone's going to be at it. There are no characters who aren't opportunist here, who aren't trying to take advantage of someone else. Here. In fact, in some ways, Helen is maybe the most sympathetic character, even though she's the daughter of a, you know, of a leader of a racist organization. You know, she actually at the end accepts that she might be black and accepts raising a black kid at the end of the novel. Everyone else is kind of taking advantage of, of others. And then finally, we have Jim Crow. And especially the, the theme here that Skyler's trying to make is that the Jim Crow itself is benefiting whites and a certain sector of this black middle class who who has you know they can benefit from you know running businesses that cater to blacks specifically well that ends my study here of black no more sorry for such a long episode but as i said this is one of those works that hovers between 100 and 200 pages it's a bit too long for one episode, but not quite long enough, I think, to justify two full ones. But, you know, I'm at an hour almost, so maybe I should have. We'll have two more Harlem Renaissance novels to look at before we close this series. And they are similar to Black No More in that they're genre fiction. The Conjurman Dies is a murder mystery, and Black Thunder is historical fiction. 
Well, um, thanks so much for listening. If you have any comments, please make them or share, subscribe, rate this episode, like it, uh, whatever you guys do. Uh, if you want to send me an email, you can do it at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I urge you to go check out my concurrent series, the Philip K. Dick Book Club. That will be going on for at least a couple years if I can keep going with this. And that will have the goal of looking at all of Philip K. Dick's work. If you like science fiction, that's a great place to go where I'll be looking at the, the work of perhaps one of the greatest science fiction writers in American history. So with that, I'll see you in 100 pages as we enter into the first murder mystery published by an African-American writer, um, Fisher as the Conjurman Dies. I'm looking forward to it. Then she traveled around from Frisco to China. She met a guy with an easy minor. He got a kiss on that very first trip. He promised her that ride on that battleship. She cried, boo, I'll get even with you. She says, now you may smile, then you may frown, but I can't let you keep.